0: Life Radio. this is Pet Life Radio, let's talk pets. Good day from California, welcome to the Anything Possible Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Courtney, I'm a veterinary surgeon, former co-host of Pet Talk on Nat Gia Wild, host of Vet Candy Watch, and I'm just an all-around pet lover. As many of you know, this is a podcast where we celebrate the fact that everywhere you look, there is the beauty of the human animal bond. And that bond influences our everyday lives. Lucky for me, I get to talk to some of the most fascinating and engaging people that help to explore and strengthen that bond. Okay, before we get started, I want to be sure to let everyone out there know how to get in contact with me. If you have questions, thoughts, or topic discussions, you could reach me at Dr. Courtney DVM on Twitter, Instagram, and of course on Pet Life Radio. Questions with positivity and love will get answered with priority but not exclusivity. So I'll pretty much answer anything. In this episode, we're going to do something we've never done before in any episode on anything possible. As you might imagine, anytime we break boundaries for this podcast, I get super excited. And I think you should be too. In this episode, not only are we stepping onto new terrain, but we're going to talk about crossing a new frontier in the field of medicine. And the reoccurring motif throughout the entire conversation is going to be the power the depth, and the omnipresence of the human-animal bond. Right now as I speak, there is a furious search for a preventative or treatment for the novel coronavirus. In fact, it's been estimated that about 80 groups around the world are researching vaccines and some are even entering clinical trials. Some therapies are antiviral in their intent, meaning they change the biochemical mechanism by which the virus enters the cell, or they will alter an enzymatic process so the virus can't copy itself. Vaccines, on the other hand, train a person's immune system to identify and eliminate a virus or other pathogens. But what if there was a therapy that could potentially do both? And what if this therapy could not only block the novel coronavirus from entering the cell, but could also work as a potential preventative? Well, the answer to that question may be found in an unlikely species, the llama. Llamas are not just small, woolly camels with a hump. They could be, and I emphasize could be, warriors, maybe even saviors, in the fight against the novel coronavirus. Llamas belong to a group called camelids, which include camels, alpacas, vicuñas, guanyacos, and yes, llamas. This group produces a specialized class of antibodies, which are called nanobodies. Researchers out of Texas and Belgium collaborated to develop nanobodies from llamas for research into severe acute respiratory syndrome, otherwise known as SARS, and Middle East Respiratory syndrome otherwise known as MERS. Both of these diseases are caused by coronavirus related to SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. After they found llamas had produced nanobodies to both of these viruses, they then investigated if those same nanobodies could help prevent the novel coronavirus from entering the cell. In their research, not only did they find one very promising nanobody, but they engineered it so it could stick to the virus more tenaciously. Although the study has not yet entered you know, human clinical trials. This could be groundbreaking. So what is an antibody and what potential does this research really have? We'll delve into that question with our guests. But look, I think it's important to recognize that llamas and the entire camelid family are awesome and fascinating in their own right, even without the potential implications of fighting a disease that has inflicted human suffering. So that's why we're joined by Dr. Rob Callen. Dr. Callen is a professor at Colorado State University in the Department of Clinical Sciences and service coordinator of the Livestock Medicine and Surgery Service at CSU Veterinary Teaching Hospital. He obtained his veterinary degree at Oregon State University in 1986 and then obtained a master's in science in reproductive physiology at Utah State University in 1988. Dr. Callan completed a residency in large animal internal medicine at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he also obtained a PhD in virology in 1996. He's been a faculty member at CSU since 1996 and provides clinical care for ruminant, swine, and comalid livestock at the CSU Veterinary Teaching Hospital. Dr. Callen is a member of the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine. His research focuses on livestock infectious disease, medicine, and surgery. He is a leading authority on camelid medicine, and I'm honored to have him as the first large animal medicine guest on Anything Possible. This was truly an illuminating conversation.
1: Looking for a dental treat that does more for your dog? Daily Dose is a two-in-one chew that pairs a daily dental scrub with powerful supplements, to help with the biggest health concerns facing our dogs. Daily Dose was developed by vets to be simple to use and super effective. Plus, dogs love the taste. Available for joint, skin, heart health, or calming. Daily Dose. Your pet's daily dose of awesome. Visit yourpetsdailydose.com to save $3 on your first bag with promo code PETLIFE. That's yourpetsdailydose.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com
0: So, let's welcome to the podcast, Dr. Callan. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Dr. Courtney, it's a pleasure to be here. This is an exciting time, an interesting topic, and I'm sure glad to participate in this.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. Listen, there is a really strong topic and a buzz going around about llamas and the fight against COVID-19. And I want to jump right into that. But before we do that, we do a little bit of a segment on anything possible called Set the Scene. So this is where we just set the scene of how you grew up. Number one, how did you become a veterinarian? And how did that blend into your love for animals set the scene for us on, on what it was like for dr. Rob growing up with
1: animals oh that's great I grew up in Western Oregon in the Willamette Valley in Eugene Oregon so you know track capital of the world back then and you know, when I was growing on up and um, we were I grew up as a city kid my dad was a was a doctor and my mom was a nurse and somehow you know I think it happens with all veterinarians somehow you develop this affinity towards animals, and you become interested in them. But as I went through school, I also liked math and physics and all the sciences and engineering, but I just kept getting drawn back into animals. So uh, thankfully, I got accepted into veterinary school. What is, I think, one of the most interesting things, and, and especially for young people looking to get into veterinary medicine, is I entered veterinary school thinking I was going to be a small animal veterinarian. And it was somewhere around my third year that I went, oh man, I really like cattle and sheep and goats and horses. And I changed my track. And, uh, and here I am, you know, I went and got some other opportunities and uh, been here a long time here at CSU. And it's just been absolutely terrific.
0: Well, thank you for that. I love the idea of starting out initially thinking one thing and it being changed to something completely different. I tell a lot of young people that all the time, like this is an incredible journey and enjoy it because you can start out thinking that you're going to be uh, in one discipline and it turns to something completely different. I thought I was going to be a radiologist, turned out to be a small animal surgeon. So it it was the same for me, you know, and and speaking about going a different direction in this fight against COVID-19. I really want to jump right into some of the most scintillating information and topics that are coming out in the past couple of weeks. And that is regarding llamas being involved against, in the fight against COVID-19. And I wanted to sort of pick your brain about some of this news and research that's coming out, particularly around the topic of nanoantibodies. For all those out there who may not be familiar with antibodies, you essentially have an army in your immune system, and this army is designed to neutralize threats, kill threats, and there's a complex, extremely well-orchestrated, I should say a complicated orchestra of cells that are designed to neutralize threats. And one particular type of soldier in this army, something called the nano-antibody, could you talk to us a little bit about why llamas may be one of our best friends in this fight against COVID-19?
1: Yeah, so this is really, really interesting research. And uh, um, I'll kind of give I'll break it into some bites here and see if we can kind of break. Please, this down. yes,
0: please, because this is this is something that so yeah. many people are craving to learn
1: more about. Yeah. So so you know, you mentioned about antibodies. So our B lymphocytes make antibodies, and normal or conventional antibodies throughout mammals are basically made up of four chains of proteins. So there's I'm trying to put my fingers on up here and kind of make it look like it. But basically, an antibody has two heavy chains, at the bottoms of my arms, right. and they continue on up, and then they bind also two light chains, and they kind of come up into a Y or a fork like this. And that's a, normal, that's a normal antibody for us as humans and all the other mammals that are on the earth. And, but camels have developed this ability to make a single heavy chain antibody. So instead of this big forked antibody with this smaller light chain on it, it actually is a single antibody that, that comes on up and forks as this heavy chain, but it's cut out a bunch of pieces, and it's not nearly as big. So that's the first thing that's interesting is when it's not as, as big, and that lets it get into places that these bigger normal antibodies can't get into. Then researchers have taken that, and what they can do now is they can go in and they can... Activate the immune system in a llama or an alpaca or a camel if they want and then pull out the B-cells that are making these heavy chain antibodies and Find the B-cells that are making the antibody that is specific for something that they're looking for And then once they identify that they can take that cell expand that cell and grow it on up and then find the gene that is making that specific antibody and then what's even cooler at that point is they can then take just the end point. So you've got the you've got the heavy chain here and then you've got this variable region that's sticking off like this. They can take this right. little tiny variable region here and that's called the nanobody and they can go and synthesize that and they can actually synthesize it in bacteria or in human cells or even in yeast. And they've got this little tiny molecule that is very very uh, has a really high ability to go and find the antigen that it looks for and bind to it. And that's the key. Is I think that's really part
0: of the essence and the beauty behind the story is that they're not just isolating the nanoantibody. They isolate the B cell that's actually producing those antibodies. Then they, once they find the, the gene that's uh, replicating those antibodies, then from those antibodies, they can find the nanobot antibody that's part of that that nanobody and then at that point then they can synthesize that in other cells
1: yes yes and because they can then synthesize oh, it in other yeah. cells like bacteria or yeast this is something that's very scalable so you can actually make a, quite a bit of these small nanobodies as you scale that on up and that would be important if this becomes now when
0: you, you say this is scalable and you can make a lot of them that's really appealing to a lot of people because That's one thing that struck me about these nanobodies or nanobodies is that they're extremely stable and they can, they seem like they last for a long time, or at least that's what the reports are indicating. Does that jive with what you've, you've obviously know and and your expertise?
1: Yeah. So there's, there's two parts. One, it's stable. So it's stable from a standpoint of storage standpoint. So we can put it into a vial and it'll last quite a while until it gets reconstituted. The other interesting thing is because it's a smaller protein, it is not as antigenic. So we've heard in the news already about people getting treated for COVID-19 with convalescent plasma, plasma from people who yes. have recovered as a potential treatment. But those antibodies being bigger proteins are immune systems. So if I got that, my immune system would eventually start reacting against those foreign proteins and start pet- destroying them. Exactly. But these nanobodies are smaller and they're they're less susceptible to my immune system reacting against them and destroying them so we've got a small molecule it can get into our body and and we can deliver it but then also it can stay there for a reasonable period of time
0: yeah, so not only, okay, a small molecule, it, it may prevent. And again, I have to couch all of this in that all of this research is preliminary. Uh, there's plenty of hurdles that they still need to climb in terms of using this clinically, but it's, it's just so fascinating and, and extremely enthralling that I'm glad we're getting a chance to talk about it. But So you've got a small nanobody that's stable, can be replicated at scale, is less antigenic. And the other component, which you kind of hinted at, is that there's potential that it could be used either at the site of delivery, meaning in the lungs, or it could actually be used as a treatment instead of prevention, which I think there's been a lot of talk in the news about a potential vaccine. Could you talk to us a little bit about how this nanobody could be used as a potential treatment and blocking the virus from entering the cell versus a a vaccine, which is something completely different?
1: Yeah, So I'll I'll relate back, as you say, it's so early in research in so many fronts for COVID-19. Some of the early indications coming on out of, we're going to drop back here to the giving the convalescent plasma. Absolutely. Some of the indications of that, so you take blood from a person who's recovered, it has antibodies against SARS-CoV-2, and then you give that blood or that plasma to a person who's currently sick. Some of the work that's coming out on that is showing that it seems that that type of treatment seems to work better earlier in the course of disease. And that makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense because we really need to get and try and stop the virus from replicating and infecting other cells early before this inflammatory response starts, starts developing and causing all the severe, the severe disease. So if we carry that same principle towards using possible nanobodies, by far the best time to possibly use this would be as a blocking agent, as something like say, maybe it could be taken as an inhaler. I'm, I'm dreaming right now, but maybe it could be taken as an inhaler. Well, you're talking to a guy who takes
0: an inhaler before he runs. So yeah, these <laughs> dreams, I hope these dreams become a reality for sure, but please continue, yeah.
1: Yeah, so, so you know maybe you've got the, the inhaler and you take a big breath of these nanobodies and they go on down and they, they coat your airways. And if the virus is there or if the virus was just starting to replicate, you know, if they bind to that virus, potentially they can stop that virus from infecting the next cell, growing more virus and then infecting the next cell. So in a treatment, so when you think of our healthcare workers, again, the big call out to all the healthcare workers that are putting their lives at risk to try and treat patients with with COVID-19, they're exposed every day. And so, having something that can help those people that are exposed, or take it a further, if, as we develop more and more testing in the U.S., and someone goes on through and say and goes, "Hey, I think I might have COVID-19. I'm starting to get the symptoms," and they go through and they get a test and they're positive. Well, then one, maybe they can be treated at that early stage, but maybe more importantly, their family members or their in-contact workers that are exposed, maybe then they also could be treated and possibly stop the infection from proceeding from the one infected person onto others. So that aspect could be really, really important in stopping that replication of viral spread from person to person.
0: Listen, I tell you what, it's the profile or the potential profile that, you know, the promise regarding this treatment. It sounds so intriguing because I think that for the longest time, we've been really focused on three main pathways, which is one, mitigation strategies, two, treatment, and then three, the vaccine or prevention strategies. And it's so nice and sort of, it takes a deep dive into the world of immunology when you talk about a treatment that could straddle one of those two pillars, whether it is treatment and prevention all at the same time. It's, it's truly, truly remarkable stuff. So now that you talk to us a little bit about the future and everybody's opti- like excited like me, I'm kind of geeking out here because you explain that so well. Let's let's get a dose of reality. What are yeah. some of the hurdles that you think they're going to have to encounter before this is ever ever whatsoever given in a in a clinical setting or to a person?
1: Yeah. So so the research that was done, and this was research that was done in collaboration both by researchers at Texas A and M as well as researchers at uh, Ghent University in Belgium. And the research that's done so far shows that if you take these nanobodies and you mix them into the fluid that's on top of the cell culture in a lab, so it's just cells growing in a petri dish, and you add the virus on right. in, these, these nanobodies will bind to the virus, and they will block the virus from being able to attach and enter into the these cells. So that's really encouraging, and, and it, it does it really, really well. It's very effective right. at blocking this. Now we have to go to the the actual person, <laughs> the actual right. human being. Right. And when I look at it going, what are the big hurdles? The first hurdle is how do you get the nanobody in contact with the virus? And early on, we've already talked about, well, what about inhalers? Well, that puts the, the antibody or the nanobody on the surface of the airways, but pretty rapidly this coronavirus is infecting cells and potentially invading on into deeper and deeper layers. And so, you know, the question is, can the nano, how far can the nanobody get into tissues if it's an aerosolized application? Or you know, say it's given as an injectable um, application and then distributed on into the tissues. Is there enough opportunity where there's free virus for it to bind to and then stop that virus from, from infecting another cell? That's a big medical question that just isn't known. sure.
0: And so it's not like it can uncouple a virus from a cell, or at least that's not what I've read. And so the other potential hurdle like you had described is the vehicle. You know, how do you get these, nano, these nanobodies actually to the free virus? That's, I think, one of the major keys that you're bringing up.
1: So yeah. the testing there, obviously safety. We don't know. We presume that, that, there's, you know, that this would be a reasonable, reasonably safe type of treatment but that's not known. When to give it, you know, when is it best used? Is it best used prophylactically, like we already discussed, or early in the infection? It looks like later times, if you go back to the plasma transfusions, that applying those after people are already severely ill or on ventilators, that that doesn't work as well at that point. So it's something that would probably be identified up front. And then, once you kind of have this model an idea of what you, how you might use it then comes in the whole licensing aspect. Safety.
0: Gotta, yes.
1: Yeah, Got to show safety. Have to show efficacy. Until those two things are met, you don't have a product that you can apply to the general public. And yeah. And, can- and
0: listen, this is but and anything possible is a, you know a space where we really explore the human-animal bond, and nothing really connects the human-animal bond like just talking about llamas potentially being partners in crime and helping to prevent COVID-19. But even just looking at, in a research setting, at which species seem to be particularly susceptible or who essentially have angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 receptor that makes them more susceptible to coronavirus. We know about cats, obviously humans, you know, non-human primates, ferrets, Syrian hamsters. But then in some of these research animals like mice and rats, Uh, potentially dogs, they seem like they're relatively, at least up now, relatively resistant to this particular virus, which makes all of what you and I just said about putting through screening and safety, makes it a little bit more difficult when the most common species that you'd like to do research on don't really seem to be susceptible to that. Do you look at that as a hurdle or not necessarily?
1: (sighs) Yeah, I, it is a hurdle. They'll, they'll start with some, I'm sure they'll start with animal models if they get to that point. Um, sure. But, you know, at, at some point still, you're doing safety trials in humans. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, that's a big step.
0: That's a huge step. Now, a lot of people are listening saying llamas, nanoantibodies. I didn't even know that nanoantibodies even existed or like llamas even had those. But llamas and humans have had that, have shared that intersectionality and that human animal bond for quite a long time, not only just recently with SARS and MERS, you know, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, but even with thousands of years ago. So basically, when did humans and llamas and camelids like actually interact and, and become and share a relationship, so to speak?
1: Well, yeah, you know, the whole camelid species is, is interesting from an evolutionary standpoint. And, and so right. since you led me on into that one, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it. Camelids actually, historically, Camelids actually developed or started here in North America. What were prehistoric Camelids were here in North America about 40 million years or so ago. Interesting.
0: I I had no idea that they're actually basically prehistoric Camelids in the the United
1: States, so to speak. In the United States. Okay. Yeah. And then what happened, oh gosh, this was about 3 million years ago or so, that the way the continents were together there was the ability for migration up across alaska and into asia and so the camelids that were part of the united states or part of north america migrated right
0: canada Canada. can't forget canada right
1: yep up through canada yep and on into alaska and then across over on into asia and um those became of the you know the camels so the dromedary camels and the bactrian camels over in in okay there was also then migration that went south, and they went down, down through what now is, wasn't then, but what now is Mexico and Panama and down, down in South America. Got it. But at that same time, and at the Ice Age that actually occurred at that time, the Camelids that were in, the, in North America, they basically went extinct. They disappeared from North America. So we had the African and Asian Camelids, and then we had the South American Camelids. The South American camelids then is what developed on into the two more wild species, the guanaco and the Vicuña, and then the two more domesticated species that are the llama and the alpaca. And then probably I'd say it was more or less in the 1980s or so. I don't know when the first llamas and alpacas were imported back up into the United States, but somewhere in that range or so, then people imported some of these llamas and alpacas back up into the United States and then they've developed their livestock production and livestock industry for llamas and alpacas in the United States. And and you know, you
0: already know what I want to ask after this and that a lot of people are listening are, all right, that makes sense. They were extinct due to the ice age. We had two wild species, two domestic species, llamas and alpacas. How in the world can you tell the difference between a llama and an alpaca?
1: (laughs) It's great. Llamas. No, it's
0: just that anything possible, you know, we really try to focus on a lot of things with paws. And what's great is with we, we're having this beautiful opportunity to talk about uh, livestock and just now animals with toes instead. And so this is <laughs> it's sort of an inaugural episode for anything possible where we delve into these issues. So help us out. Although that may be a remedial question, there are a lot of people wondering, how do you tell the difference between a llama and an alpaca? Yeah.
1: Perhaps even funnier, you made me think back to my childhood because going, when, when the heck did I even first see a llama or an alpaca? And I have to Wait. say, I think my first visual seeing of a llama would have been in the original Dr. Doolittle movie. I don't know if you've ever seen it or not. but <laughs> I think it's Rex Harrison. No. Oh, if you can find it, you have to go and watch the original Dr. Doolittle. And there's this creature in there called the... The P- original Dr. Doolittle. Yep, yep, called the Push Me, Pull You. And it was kind of this this llama-like creature that had heads on both ends, and they called it the push before you. But anyway. (laughs) Okay. Sit. Stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Well, four to be exact. Poor Chuck. his coat is very thick. He's an Akita German Shepherd Lab Husky Mix. Harold, the Border Collie Pit Mix, has the most beautiful jet black coat. Stuart, my rat carrier, has fur now where he never had it before.
0: D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E
1: oh. dot com. Dynavite will give them a beautiful, lustrous coat. It will make you smile. You get some Dynavite, how happy your dog will be. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E oh. dot com. Are you listening to this
0: right now with a cell phone clenched between your teeth as you frantically flip pages on your paper calendars? Or are you a new breed of groomer bred for speed and efficiency of movement? 123 Pet software automates your communications, doing the reminding, confirming, thanking and marketing for you. 123 Pet centralizes your schedule, employees clients inventory and more one two three pet is the business management software you need start minding your business today visit one two three pet com. let's talk pets let's talk
1: pets on pet life radio
0: pet life radio pet life radio, pet life radio. <laughs>
1: So, uh, let's see, where were we going Just the
0: difference between the two, just the difference between the
1: two. Llamas and alpacas. Llamas are larger, so pound-wise, they'll be on anywhere from about 250 pounds. On a really, really large llama is going to approach up to 400 pounds. but Usually, they're in that 300, 350-pound range. They also, if you look at their ears, their ears have a little bit different conformation. People talk about them being banana ears. They kind of have a curve. Okay, banana ears. They're fiber coat is more coarse it, it is not the the individual hairs have a greater diameter to them so in general they're a little bit more coarse than our alpacas to me their their face has a little bit and I think other people that raise them their face has a little bit different conformation alpacas have a to me a more refined, a little bit deer-like, but a, a, a more dainty, refined face to them than do llamas. Llamas are a little bit bulkier right. head and face, and nose than our alpacas. So alpacas are smaller. Run, for an adult alpaca, oh, anywhere from about 125 on up to maybe as big as 325 pounds. Okay. Their, their fiber is much thinner and much finer than llamas. And that's one of the things that makes them a little bit more valuable from the, the textile or the fiber standpoint. And, uh, and they do make some really, really remarkable, both llamas and alpacas, but especially alpacas, make some really remarkable textile um, type things from, from their fiber.
0: Right, right. So llamas are larger, coarser hair, have daintier faces and, and banana-shaped ears. But you mentioned that a lot of them do make this incredible fur But there was a a llama boom, a a boom in llama farming, or at least what I remember just as I was coming up. Now, listen, when I was younger, I was not interested in, in llama farming. I don't know if I paid attention to the news back then. But in retrospect, I remember hearing something about it in the 80s and the 90s. Was there a big boom? What in the world were people doing with all of these llamas? Why in the world was there such a tremendous interest in llama farming uh, way back in the the 80s and the 90s? And why has it declined?
1: Yeah. So that's a little bit harder for me to answer as a veterinarian and not a person who owned the llamas and alpacas. Right, right. I hope I don't disturb any of our previous clients, but I also wondered that same thing even at the time. You know, why... Animals so valuable the first reason they were valuable early on is is that they were rare and God. and so coming on into the United States They were rare another thing that happened with llamas and alpacas at that time is they developed the registries and then they had quite a significant uh, I guess show type scenario where Llamas would go and compete against each other relative to their show type and how well they met this conformational expectation of a llama or an alpaca and so you know, you had your top beautiful llamas and alpacas, and they they garner right. a higher value from a breeding standpoint, and so there were breeding fees and and all that sort of stuff, and that that brought this boom on up as people were trying to say, "Oh, I want to get into this. I want right. to breed llamas or alpacas, and then sell these to other people, and then breed on more and more and more, and and um, keep developing this." this livestock industry, this alpaca and llama industry in the US. So that was the upslope. The upslope was going pretty good until the 2008-2009 recession. Wow. And when that hit, and the, the extra money came out of the floor of our economy, then people said, wait a minute, these llamas and alpacas, they aren't really necessary. What are we, right. why are we having them? And so the the bottom really dropped out of that market. They went; their value dropped by almost tenfold. Uh, wow! So anywhere from five to tenfold, as far as their value for sale, and so that was quite remarkable. Made a difference from our standpoint from veterinary medicine because at one point, you know, we were treating them as highly valued animals. You know, almost like a breeding stud if it was a, a stallion or a bull or something. Right. And and now they don't have that value. So they, they fall back into just general livestock um, scenarios as far as value. And that, that makes a difference as far as, as far as veterinary care and what, what they can afford yes. and how much we can treat for them. Absolutely. So, so anyways, yeah, that, that's where it's gone. And that's what's happened to it. And, and I think we're really, we are at a good place right now because now they're seen as basically a stable vi- livestock commodity. And their purposes range everything from, from the textile industry as well as then pack animals, um, which is a wonderful use. And also for llamas, guard animals. They actually function as really good guard animals for sheep and goats. And they will protect a herd uh, or flock of sheep and goats, just like guard dogs can, and can be very, very um, oh, good at protecting against predators.
0: So they can be a little bit feisty. You know, that feisty, it reminds me a little bit of, I was speaking with a doctor friend of mine who has a daughter and she became, her daughter became, is 10 years old, became extremely interested in chameleons and she really wanted a chameleon. (laughs) So she basically said to her, okay, what I want from you before we get a chameleon is I want you to give me a PowerPoint presentation on what's required for a chameleon, what their behavior is like, what are some good medical practices to keep them alive, happy and healthy. And after her daughter did that presentation, she came back to her mom after hours of research and said, I don't think your house would be very good for a chameleon, you know, because she had learned about the good husbandry practices uh, required for reptiles. My question to you is, when starting out and, and thinking about having a llama, I'm imagining that some people weren't really attuned to or weren't really knowledgeable about some of their behavior characteristics and their personality characteristics. Do you have any interesting pearls of wisdom in regards to just behavior and personalities when it comes to llamas and alpacas. My understanding is that camelids in general are a little bit head shy.
1: Yeah, yeah. So they are head shy and that's and that's and they're also leg shy. They don't like you touching their legs. Don't and like that actually goes back that goes back to their behavior and the way they socialize with each other. So llamas and alpacas are herd animals, and within that herd they develop a very, very organized hierarchy of of dominance and submissiveness within that herd. And they do that predominantly by fighting. And when they fight with each other, they go and bite at each other, and they either bite up around the head, neck, and face, or down around the legs is where they fight. So for me as a human, even though I'm not so much in their social structure, if I go on into an animal and I reach up and grab for the face or try and hold the face or I grab for a leg to pick up and look at the foot, they interpret that as me fighting with them, or at least that's our interpretation of it, or what we think right. is happening. And they respond with generally a an avoidance response. They try and move away from that. They'll, if I grab at a leg, they'll try and kick or stomp at the leg or move away. If I grab at their head and face, they'll go, no, I don't want that. And they'll try and move away. That's one of the first things. Person needs to needs to start to understand their behavior and how to work with their behavior and, make them so they're manageable.
0: Yeah, listen, all of this sort of ethology or study of animal behavior, particularly llama and alpaca behavior is just not something that a lot of people get, a lot of veterinarians get. So every we're hanging on every word you say. I really appreciate <laughs> you breaking it down breaking down for us, but we've got to talk about one thing that every camelid's kind of known for, camelid's kind of known for, and that is spitting. Can you break that down for us? Like, why in the world do they spit? And that's kind of like the one thing that nobody wants is to be spit on by either a camel, a llama, or an alpaca. Why do they do it? And is it truly spit or is it gastric juices, gastric fluids?
1: Yeah, great question. So, it is the latter. It is gastric fluid that they regurgitate on up from their stomach. So right. we have ruminants over here. Yep. On the, so cattle, sheep, uh, goats. And then we have llamas. Llamas are actually what are called pseudo ruminants. So they don't have, they function similarly to a ruminant, but instead of having a rumen and a reticulum and an omasum and an abomasum, big gastric stomach that's divided into three compartments. So it's just called it. Interesting. A, Uh, compartment one, compartment two, compartment three.
0: Really original names there.
1: There's no other names to it. Yep, it's just gastric compartment one, gastric compartment two, and gastric compartment three. Gastric compartment three is similar to our stomach. It's where this acid gets secreted, digestion starts um, from our our normal monogastric standpoint. It starts there. The gastric compartments one and two are kind of like the rumen and the reticulum in a cow. And that's where fermentation happens, where bacteria and protozoa and yeast break down the fiber material of the, of the forage that they're eating and uh, and make that into digestible um, and absorbable feedstuffs or nutrients. So being a pseudo ruminant, they will, and you'll see, if you watch a llama do this, you'll see them as you're standing there, periodically they will regurgitate up a cud of feed material that's down in their gastric compartment. And then right. they'll take that and they'll re-chew it. And they'll basically, yep. when they do that, they're breaking down The grass components, the the fiber components into smaller and smaller pieces and then they'll swallow that back down. Okay. So when they spit, that is what they are spitting at you. So you're exactly right. It is their gastric contents and it smells like their gastric contents. It tastes like their gastric contents. I can attest to that. And um, uh, now why they learned that that is a way for their social interaction that helps defer other animals away from them if they're getting in a fight. But when they fight with each other, they will stand and face off and they will scream and holler and try and bite each other and then also spit at each other with those gastric contents. Oh,
0: gosh, man, <laughs> yes. You said you, suck, attest- right? yeah, you said you can
1: attest to
0: the fact that they taste like gastric contents my heart goes out to you. That means at some point in your long, illustrious career, sounds like you've been spit on before.
1: Yes, yes, indeed. But unlike a spitting cobra, they will not make you go blind.
0: (laughs) Well, listen, if that's the one redeeming quality of being spit on is that you will not go blind, we'll take it. Now, listen, you jumped right into some of the medical aspects, which I love talking about, like I said, I'm, I'm certainly geeking out talking to you because of just your knowledge base. You know, they talk about, the uh, for humans at least, the the eyes being the windows to the soul and what's going on in your body with ruminants or foregut fermenters, like what you just mentioned, the four compartments, rumen, reticulum, omesum and abomasum, uh, the rumen. They say you can really detect what's what's the health of an animal listening to the rumen. How important is it when you're really treating uh, a camellid is, understanding gut sounds. And is that something you do as a clinician is actually listen to gut sounds of whether you're treating camels, llamas, or alpacas?
1: Yeah, so no, that, that is absolutely true. So, you know, here in the hospital, whether it be our physical exam or just our daily monitoring of patients, you know, we all collect vital signs. So the standard temperature, pulse, respiration rate, check mucous membranes, all, all of that sort of stuff. But in a ruminant and pseudoruminant species, the gastric contractions, so the rumen contractions or this first compartment contractions is just another one of our vital signs that we measure each time that we do a physical exam on these patients. And the reason it is is because as these animals get sick, then when they get sick, you tend to get a decrease in that gastric activity. And and that's recognized by either the strength of those contractions and the loudness of what we hear or the frequency of those contractions, and when animals are really sick, those contractions will stop altogether, and that usually right. tells us that we've got some sort of definitely a, a underlying disease condition that needs to be investigated further.
0: Well, that's really important that you bring up because I mean, uh, in the in the small animal world, of course we recognize ileus. Of course we recognize a decrease in in gastric motility. You know, I was just up at four a.m. doing a GDV surgery in a dog this morning, so we get that. However. That, that notion of really a sculpting for gastric sounds and gastric motility in the small animal world, I think it's really important to, remember, to, to note that that's not something that's done very commonly. I've certainly done it, but I can admit, obviously, to you that I don't do that on every patient. And it's not a typical or classic part of every physical exam done in a small animal world. So I'm so happy that you brought that up.
1: Well I think I think the difference comes in the anatomy as well. In a monogastric you have this relatively smaller gastric compartment there that has motility but its motility is is more of a progressive motility to to, to just simply contract and move gastric contents into the duodenum. Sure. Whereas our motility in the in the stomach or the, the rumen or the uh, the first gastric compartment is actually a very very strong robust contraction That actually mixes the feed material to allow that fermentation and digestion to occur. So it is a much, much, much more robust contraction than it is with our our normal monogastric stomach.
0: Absolutely. And there's going to be listeners thinking, wow, man, I, I love llamas, I love alpacas, I really want to get one. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about body condition scoring and how do you tell like if it's a healthy llama versus an alpaca? But we're running a little short on time. So could you just break down just in your experience, in your career, kind of the top three medical conditions that veterinarians and prospective, prospective llama and alpaca owners would think about when making that, that decision to either treat them in the case of a veterinarian or in the case of, you know, case of, a, of a llama owner or an alpaca owner, things that they should think about? What are the top three medical conditions you see?
1: Oh boy, as you know, it, uh, somewhat that's, that's dependent on what are the no last. You saw. <laughs> Overall, nationally and throughout, parasitism is probably still one of our biggest problems. Okay. And, and it'll vary across the country during, depending upon the habitat of parasitism, whether it's just regular old nematodes, roundworms, or it's protozoa with coccidia. Um, that's right. a really, really huge aspect there. Okay. Surprisingly, in llamas and alpacas, I w- I'm also going to throw dental disease up there as a really, really high problem as well. And unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, we it's hard, hard, much harder for us to deal with than it is in in dogs or cats because we don't do dentals on them. Right. And uh, but you know, there's a recent uh, pair of papers that came on out and and looked at dental disease in llamas and alpacas and. Yes. In their first initial survey, they found that 84, I think it was 80 or 84% of the individual animals had some form of dental disease, whether it be um, periodontal disease or abnormal wear of the teeth or right. um, diastomas between the teeth um, that may contribute to those other things. So I'm, so that's another one that I'm going to put way on up there that we probably don't recognize as much as we should. We don't see much respiratory disease, thank goodness. Well, that's good news. Yeah. You know, We see a little bit of GI disease, but again, much of that comes from parasitism. Um, We do have some bacterial GI diseases. There is a coronavirus GI disease in canelids. Can we talk a little bit about that? I I hate (laughs) to circle back. A coronavirus,
0: literally, that's, uh, that's honestly a lot of what people care about. So just quickly break it down. And this is something that I think is really important to highlight. I'm so glad you brought it up because in earlier conversations, in the beginning of March, the end of February, April, just in discussions, we had to talk a lot about feline enteric coronaviruses, canine coronaviruses, both the respiratory form, uh, the enteric form, which we no longer vaccinate for, and then a more deadly form or canine pantropic coronavirus. But I think for a lot of pet parents and for animal lovers, the idea that coronaviruses have existed for a long time and veterinarians have been on the front lines of public health when it comes to understanding coronaviruses, I think it was brand new to some of them. But there are a lot of people who are super knowledgeable about this now or what I call citizen scientists. So talk to me a little bit about the coronaviruses that you've seen sort of in in camelids and and of course in large animal livestock.
1: So yeah, many different species get coronaviruses. There are many, many different coronaviruses out there. Like many viruses, the virus that adapts to a certain species will tend to be fairly species specific. So yes. the, the enteric coronavirus, so the coronavirus that we see infect the GI tract of, of llamas and alpacas, seems to be fairly specific to llamas and alpacas. It is definitely not the same thing. And that's really important that we, we state this. It is right. not. SARS-CoV-2 that causes COVID-19.
0: Okay. Okay. We'll double underline that and highlight that. It's not the same
1: thing. Not the same. In our other species, probably the other one that comes coronavirus that comes to mind for for me is in cattle. There's a bovine coronavirus. And interestingly, again, it is not the virus that causes COVID-19, but it has some similarities in that Generally, we think of it as causing diarrhea with an enteritis or GI tract infection in the small intestine. The animals get diarrhea. Usually they recover from it okay, but it can also cause a respiratory disease as well. And with COVID-19, we see obviously respiratory symptoms, but there also is a fair number of patients that also have GI disease and have diarrhea. So there's, there's these similarities that go across species, but you mentioned earlier about the angiotensin converting enzyme type two, so the ACE2 protein that's on cell surfaces. The thing that makes these different coronaviruses species specific is their spike protein and how that spike protein on the virus can bind to something specific in that other host. And so these other viruses, they're, they're unique to cattle or unique to llamas and alpacas. They don't jump over to humans. So far, we don't see any evidence that SARS-CoV-2 is jumping into llamas, alpacas or cattle or other domestic livestock.
0: That's so important to to mention because everything that we talk about nowadays has to be couched in as of now or as of this date because we we just don't know because (laughs) it's such a rapidly evolving situation. I mean, just as an example, there's early preliminary reports about a COVID outbreak in in mink in the Netherlands, and they're talking about mink to human transmission, which The reality is we don't know if the human gave it to the mink or the mink are giving to each other and the human got it from somewhere else. So there's a lot that we still don't know. And I always sort of let everybody know that anything we talk about even today could literally change next week. So to your knowledge, you have not heard or seen even in research settings that uh, are have that ACE type 2 receptor that makes them susceptible to uh, novel coronavirus. And there's nothing you've seen that that reports that.
1: Right. That is correct.
0: Okay. Good. That's really good. I feel so bad because we're literally running uh, short in time. There's so much I want to talk to you about, but I just wanted to talk to you about two main things. You mentioned that dental disease is is pretty common. Uh, that you're you see that pretty commonly. In fact, there's a really touching video about the way you handled a llama. Who had a jaw fracture, a secondary to dental disease, if I'm not mistaken. So, people listening out there who love llamas and who are l- prospective llama owners, what should they be feeding to prevent this from mm-hmm. happening, or is that, or is it way more complex than that?
1: You know, we really don't don't know the, no answers to that. To to tell you the relationship, okay, and that's fair enough. I'll make a couple of points on on that. I. Llamas and alpacas are, forget the term that they use from grazing. They aren't grazers, so they don't just eat grass, and they aren't browsers. They just don't eat bush material, but they kind of combine the both. And we've brought them into an artificial environment where a lot of these animals are are congregated closer together. They aren't doing their normal feeding habits. And, you know, I mentioned about this aspect of spaces between the teeth, these diastemas that are between the teeth where they can pack material. And there is some suggestion that, that possibly this aspect that we're raising them in this environment where we're feeding them dry hay, that may predispose to feed packing between the teeth. And then once the feed packs between the teeth, you start getting the periodontal disease and then that can progress on in. We, honestly, we really don't know. So there are a lot of good ways to, to feed animals, feed llamas and alpacas, but how it's related to dentistry disease that's a, a big question. And that's,
0: and that's super fair, and I really appreciate your honesty on that. Last and most importantly, besides potentially being a partner in crime in the fight against COVID 19 and using their nanoantibodies, are there any, maybe your top two reasons that you think people listening to Anything Possible should really get to know llamas and alpacas and uh, camellids in general?
1: Well, I'm just going to go because of the lovely part of them. Number one, they are they're soft, they're, they're spider. <laughs> <laughs> their fiber is soft. They are, if you get the animals that have ad- adapted to humans, they are cuddly animals. And, right. and they are soft. And the really friendly ones, uh, just, they, they come on up to you and it's kind of like they want to hug. Any cuddly
0: animal definitely gets my vote. That's great.
1: Absolutely. Second is that their vocalization when, is, is kind of this humming sound. It's this, hmm, hmm, hmm. If you get a nice, cuddly llama or alpaca that's humming quietly, yes. I tell you, you can, you can just go into a nice, nice simple spot there, and that would be your point of enjoyment for the day.
0: I love it. I love it. We'll end there. I absolutely love it. Wait, everybody. Check out your local camelid humming or your llama humming. It'll put you into a trance-like state. Dr. Callan, this has been so illuminating and so important to talk about. Uh, Listen, I knew it was going to be fun, but this turned out to be way more fun than I ever anticipated. So I hope that was the case on your end. And as developments come in, would you mind coming on anything possible for round two? Would you ever mind doing that?
1: I'd be happy to. This has been a great pleasure for me. It's fun talking to you and, you know, it's just fun, fun talking about the things you love to do.
0: Oh, fantastic. Well, that's it, everybody. You've heard Dr. Callan, a large animal veterinary internal medicine specialist. He, he is a literal rock star in the world of uh, livestock medicine, camelid medicine. And we got a chance to talk about potentially, potentially a new best friend in our fight against COVID-19. Until next time, just remember, there's nothing stronger than the human animal bond.
1: Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand.